Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Renowned Podcast. We are your hosts and co-creators, Mark Schultz and Allison Hager. Renowned is a podcast for the curious. We dust off the commonplace and we look for new relevance as we challenge ourselves to think critically about the objects that surround us. How do they echo humanity's past, reflect the present, or foreshadow the future? Allison, do you want to remind everyone what our noun is? I sure do. The noun for this episode is payment, P-A-Y-M-E-N-T, payment. Excellent. Okay. Shall we roll our dice to see who uh, gets in first? I got a two. Four. All right. It's on you. (laughs) Great. Let me know and you have 15 seconds on the clock for me. Okay, Mark, 15 seconds on the clock in three, two, one. The concept of a transaction may be as old as humanity itself, but payments have evolved significantly over time to the point where the very mediums and dynamics of modern payments come with a significant cost of their own. Two seconds left on the clock. Nice. Well done. Um, Okay, once again, we definitely went in different directions, which is exciting. (laughs) I think there's one part of my research that I think might overlap, even though, um, but we'll see. We'll see. Just, How do you know I, yet? Well, because, well, you know, you have certain things that you gravitate towards, which is great, and things that you care about, that you're passionate about. And I feel like I might have touched on one, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. Interesting. Uh, okay. 15 seconds on the clock for you, if you are ready. Looks like it. And three, two, one, go. If you call the tune, you also have to pay the piper when he begs his due. Yeah, maybe we didn't. Maybe we didn't go in the same direction. That's, that's <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> you had seven seconds left. So pithy Excellent. and short. Uh, great. All right. Okay. Well, I guess I will head down yon rabbit hole. Exciting. So. Um, as always, I like to start with, what are we talking about? What is this word? Where did it come from? So uh, the Oxford English Dictionary defines payment as the act or process of giving money or something of value in exchange for goods, services, or obligations. Um, this can also actually refer to the amount that is paid itself or the means or method of payment, such as cash, credit, or check, um, or just in general, like the discharge of the debt like or the obligation that's met. Um, or in other ways, like compensation for a particular service, um, my payment at work, my whatever, which I guess we would call salary or wages, but in general, a, a payment from the organization to you, et cetera. Um, payment can be tracked back to mid 15th century. Its etymology can go all the way back to the Latin word pacare, which means to pacify or to make peaceful. So I that makes sense. And also I just kind of like to picture, right? Like the whole thing was, uh, I feel like a more aggressive origin of the word, right? Like if somebody was felt like they were owed something else, if we, if the word was to pacify, it was clearly already jumping ahead to somebody being agitated that they weren't getting paid back, right? <laughs> which I think is kind of funny. Um, so the word later adapted into old French as paiement, uh, which came closer to us, of course. And, and that's how it uh, transferred into English as payment. 
when it actually initially came over to English, it meant the act of pacifying or appeasing, sort of like the original Latin. Um, so it's strange. It came into French, meaning the act of making a settlement of a debt, not so much pacifying. But then when it came into English, it kind of went back to the old Latin meaning of pacifying and then gradually evolved into a compensation type of uh, meaning, interestingly enough. So jumping into trivia one. I knew it. I knew yeah. trivia was next. I just had a feeling I started to get anxious. <laughs> no, no anxiousness. <laughs> so audience, if you're a first time listener, uh, please play along as I, I ask uh, Allison uh, the first of what will be three trivia questions over the course of, of my section. So the largest transaction ever made over Apple Pay to date was A, over $100,000 for a rare coin collectible, B, over $1 million for a 1964 Aston Martin, C, over $10,000 for an event dinner, or D, over $50 million for cryptocurrency? E, A, rare coin. Uh, no, it's actually, so you, that was a hundred thousand for the rare coin. It was over $1 million for an Aston Martin. Uh, crazy. You know, I thought to myself, I thought a right away when you said, I am like, I'm going with a, but then when you said the Aston Martin one, I'm like, that is some specific detail. So that's probably the one. That's funny. I thought <laughs> when I was reading it, actually, I was like, oh, I wrote this. I didn't make the others as specific. Allison might yeah. guess. <laughs> So a little bit of context, the British automobile auction house Coys of Kensington announced that the car was bought via Apple Pay for £825,000, which is over a million dollars. Uh, the 1964 DB5, like the one featured in the James Bond film Skyfall, was the first ever classic car sold via social media. Hmm. Okay. So... Again, I kind of took, I, I feel like this has become my thing in the past few episodes. I, I did like a part one and a part two, sort of two different vibes on the on the word. So the first thing I, I kind of wanted to do was just refresh myself on some things that I knew, uh, some things I didn't in terms of the history of the forms of payment. So earliest forms of payment, I think everyone might know this or it might ring a bell, is bartering, right? So bartering is the very oldest form of currency itself, where in a way there wasn't actually currency. Uh, it was the act of just a direct exchange of goods or services uh, without the use of, of physical money. Uh, barter was common in early societies sort of before the development of money later. Over time, we had something called commodity money take place and commodity money was a type of money that had intrinsic value. So it was made from valuable things, such as gold or silver. Uh, commodity money was used uh, in many societies before the development of what we have now, which is called fiat money, F-I-A-T. So fiat money uh, doesn't have intrinsic value itself. It's created by a government or a central bank and is backed by the full faith and credit of the issuing authority. So fiat money is the most common form now used um, today, uh, you know, immediately, even as I'm describing this, comes to mind the the different takes and confidence in commodity money versus fiat money when you have certain sects within even American culture or any culture uh, where 
I feel like the more you have doubt and sort of a revolutionary vibe among the people, the more they doubt the government and they want to start to invest in gold again. So I feel like if you were to talk to right wing folks, um, you're going to see a little bit more of this like need to invest in gold, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'd say far right and far left. I mean, if you're talking to preppers and that sort of thing. Um, but I'm I'm going to throw in a PSA on that because I was thinking when you were talking about fiat money, you know, if you think about um, an apocalyptic world scenario, you know, your money doesn't matter anymore because if governments crumble, there's nothing backing it. And like what happens there? And we go back to the commodities, like Mark said. But also if you yeah. have a go bag for an emergency, which you should, because, well, we might not necessarily see a zombie apocalypse, you know natural disasters and that sort of thing. You should just always have a go bag. Uh, You should keep small bills in it, like ones and fives, because in the immediate term, if you need to, we live in Manhattan, so like we need to get on public transportation or we need to get a ride from somebody, nobody's going to give you change. If you need to kind of pay somebody for a service and you can't access anything, you can't, you know, go to a bank. So always have ones and fives stashed away in your go bag. Otherwise, that's my PSA. It's going to be a damn expensive granola bar. You're going to be like, here's $100. That's all I have. Um, we're like, ha ha, apocalypse. But it's true. Um, <laughs> so, and even when you play that scenario out, I feel like, yes, commodity money would become important. But then over time, depending on what the disaster was, I feel like it's so fluid. Right now we've been in like fiat land. But right, it would start to say... I'm picturing like movies and films about to your point, zombie apocalypse, but say that the compound where somebody like takes refuge and then like, you know, there isn't enough gold to go around. So then they issue who knows what, like as, you know, shreds of cloth to be uh, representative of a currency, you sort of end up going back to fiat in a way, or there's another type called representative, um, uh, that I didn't list, which was like tobacco new- notes in human history and in U.S. history, they couldn't be used for anything. They could be used only for tobacco, right? So they were only like a one-to-one ratio with a particular commodity, uh, but they weren't, of course, made of tobacco. They were just like paper notes. Anyway, uh, so so moving on to just sort of some of the pros and cons that are out there in the literature on on currency for barter. Some pros, simple and direct, right? Um, it also doesn't require a central authority to regulate it. Uh, now, a side note on there, one thing that was interesting to me in my research, I actually started out on this trying to track down some uh, proof, if you will, or or you know, just the, the background of of research and, and history on what I had learned many years ago, which was that one of the benefits of currency was that it helped separate the people from needing like a, a tribal chieftain or other head of a community to sort of bless or okay approve the the transaction of a, of a barter. I couldn't find that because it turned out that some folks viewed bartering as what I just described. It did not require a central, right? You can be on the side of a road and, and you know, give 
magic beans for a cow, for example, like those types of things. Like you could just exchange anything and, and there doesn't need to be um, anyone around. So I feel like it, it's probably at different points in history when that might've been true. If you were a very small tribe somewhere, that might've been different versus later in history where you were just out on the side of a road or bartering in an inn or something like that. Anyway, in fact, a lot of my research, which I don't get too into actually at all today, but did describe that when you get away from barter into currency, it is a form of control of a government that actually to have that central authority um, is another way that if you're not trusting your government, it can be manipulative of a, of a society. Okay. Uh, other pros of barter, it can be used in any economy, regardless of its size or complexity. So it doesn't necessarily have to go away. You might have barter. You know, there's probably a lot of bartering happening right now, uh, even though we are a tried and true fiat system overall. Some cons: it can be uh, it can be difficult to find someone that you want to trade with. That the 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 value of two certain things is the same, right? You I don't know. You only look around. You have an expensive audio stereo system or something like that that you want could give away and then the only thing someone's willing to do for you is clean your house like it's not quite the same right vibe and, and level of value so th those types of things can crop up uh, it can be difficult to value goods and services that are not easily comparable so sort of what i just described it's similar right? it's hard to find somebody because they're difficult to compare and it can be difficult to store and transport goods and services um you know, if it was food-based or things like that, it's you're suddenly going to lose that value uh, if it's sitting on your shelf too long. So commodity money, similar. Pros, uh, intrinsic value, which means that it's valuable even when it's not being used as money. Um, so you can transform it, et cetera, especially if it's gold or silver, uh, and then still sell it later. It could be a pretty necklace, but then you can still sell it if you need to. Uh, it's easy to store and transport. It's widely accepted form of payment, but of course its cons are its value can fluctuate based on supply and demand. Uh, I mean, I'm picturing, I don't know how often this happened in history, but you, you had a little bit, but then like a gold mine was found outside of town. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to go down a little bit. Um, and also it can be counterfeited. I had to think about that for a second because as I was re referencing this, I was thinking that commodity money would be harder to counterfeit than fiat. But I, I think what I found was that fiat can be advanced to a degree where it might be harder to counterfeit. Whereas if it's gold and all it's just a shiny metal object, other than like biting it, everything we've seen in every film known to man or like TV show where someone's like in the middle ages being like, yeah, it's good. Bite the, you know, it, I guess you, it could be harder to test. Um, to make sure that something is actually a gold coin, I suppose. So harder, uh, it can be counterfeited. So fiat money, pros and cons. Uh, stable in value. Hmm. That's listed as a, a pro in my research. Um, I, I guess overall in like historical circles, it, it, it is more stable. But as we well know, things can fluctuate quite easily in global markets. Um, it's easy to divide into smaller units, uh, to Allison's point just now. Uh, with the go bag situation. Uh, it is difficult to counterfeit and it is used by a central authority which can regulate its supply. So you have um, the benefit if you're looking at a government as it's doing its job to regulate and create a safety net. Uh, cons, it does not have intrinsic value. So the other flip side of that, 
shit hits the fan and it is go bag time and the zombies are eating everyone. Uh, you're, that's the, over time, people are going to lose confidence that that $200 bill on your pocket uh, or $200 is uh, doing anything for you. They're like, I don't need paper. I need medicine now, et cetera. B, it can be devalued by inflation or C, it's not as widely accepted as a form of payment as commodity money. So the other thing that we have is, as we've evolved recently in human history is digital currency. So it's the, the newest and latest form of currency. And there are a lot of pros and cons if anyone has not been keeping up on them. So some examples of a very popular current digital currency are Bitcoin and Ethereum. So forgive me, audience, if, if uh, this is a topic that you have read up on and you know a lot about, but you, you may or may not know what blockchain is. And so I thought I would just uh, describe in general some things that I knew, but also some things that I refreshed myself on because I feel like unless you stay in this very ever-changing uh, and, and complex sort of area of finance, um, you may forget it. So blockchain is, it's called a distributed ledger technology, which might feel overwhelming to be like, well, what does that mean? It's distributed in the sense that there are many nodes, there are many, picture it like almost servers on the internet, right? Where there are places where copies of information of this ledger um, are stored so that there is not one central authority, but there are, there is very public matching so that I say to everyone, right? If you, I think Alice and I have used this as a definition of truth, actually, in the past, there are several people in a room all staring at something. If something were to change in the nature of that, you're going to know if somebody were to try to clone it, if somebody tried to run in and steal it and switch it with something else, you have a bunch of eyes on it to know, right? Versus if one person was watching that in the room, they could be shady and do something with it and clone it and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so because of that distributed nature of it, uh, it is known to be more secure, transparent, quite literally by definition, uh, and, and more tamper-proof to transactions. Um, it's, as I described, it's a public database, basically, that's shared across. And why it's called a chain is it, each block within the code used to generate this digital currency contains a timestamp and a link to a previous block. And so that's, if you're picturing a ledger that runs, I don't know, say on an old, you know, a paper page that runs down and, and is listing the a history of transactions, picture that you're taking all of those lines within this notebook and you're just digitally chaining them together. So you have from the very beginning, the full history of the transactions from the very beginning of the minting, the beginning of whatever this digital thing um, currency was. So there's a few things that happen there. Uh, one, it's incredibly descriptive, right? You, you really know that it's very secure and that you know who has had it and where it's been and if it's real and if it's not. This crosses over into a term that a lot of folks uh, may have heard, but sometimes don't think of it as cryptocurrency, uh, NFTs. You might suddenly think of, oh, that's like crazy artwork with like gorillas and hats and spray paint and it's flashy and stuff. Well, yes, 
And but also that NFT stands for non fungible token. Fungible meaning fakeable, right? Or um, uh, clonable, etc. And so having this blockchain and having such a transparent distributed ledger of the whole history of it means you can't fake it, you can't fung it. Uh, and so uh, blockchain uh, cryptocurrency is by its nature sort of non-fungible as well. That technology, blockchain technology has been applied to other things other than digital currency code to anything. Uh, if you didn't know, you can have an NFT that is music. You can have NFT that is kind of anything that digitally could be represented. Um, but often those are things like images and things like that. Okay. So I just want to describe a little bit about that because it becomes right. Um, one of it's in the news all the time and it's becoming more and more popular. Uh, and you've probably seen people make a fortune and then lose a fortune and how, you know, um, uh, variable and, and flexible the, the value of, of things like Bitcoin or Ethereum can be. So not just for financial transactions, just to mention that blockchain technology that I mentioned being so secure is used in other areas other than finance. So in supply chain management and in things like financial transactions, history of financial transactions. So for, um, for government, blockchain can be used to improve the efficiency of government services. It can track the progress of government projects, um, land records, et cetera, things like that. In healthcare, blockchain can be used to store and manage patient medical records in a way that is secure, uh, incredibly private, um, but also linked to an individual. So it can follow you around and yet be secure, which would kind of be an ideal in, in, in sharing of medical information in a system and may make people more comfortable with it because a lot of folks don't want their incredibly private medical information to be sort of distributed in a more, either through a government entity or more publicly, but blockchain may be a, a way to solve that or like bridge the, the concern, but also the functionality that we want. Media and entertainment. Uh, I mentioned that blockchain can be other things like video or audio. So that could help that, um, uh, those industries really help reduce piracy and and secure things in a more efficient way for better or for worse some folks like to dabble in piracy some folks don't people think that it's wrong to have things be so controlled uh but it will certainly help those those industries okay um so some of the pros and cons as i did with the other forms um the benefits, I think a lot of them are, are obvious from what I just mentioned, higher security, more transparency, a lot more uh, efficiency, but efficiency more in, how should I put this? Efficiency in sort of our human effort or time or, or things in processing them. Uh, there are definitely some cons in a different type of inefficiency that we'll get to in a second. Um, some of the cons and, and challenges that blockchain has. Uh, there is a problem with scalability. Um, because it is a distributed ledger, that means that every node in the network has to store a copy of the entire ledger. So the example I used before of several people standing in a circle in a room looking at something isn't quite right because it's actually, they're not all in the same room. They're in, in nodes like on the internet 
and in distributed databases. So the thing they're looking at actually has to be an exact copy that's duplicated wherever they are. So that ledger, all that information I just mentioned, all has to be duplicated and then constantly compared. So that if one changes, red flags go off, if that makes sense, anyone. <laughs> so it's that that ledger is distributed and constantly monitored. And so if, as we talk about scalability, the amount of data uh, grows sort of exponentially from there as this takes off as a, as a technology. Because of that, it can be uh, slow to process transactions. That's because the transactions have to be verified by all the nodes in the network. Um, you know, that transparency also means that, yeah, they all have to sort of weigh in. It sort of has to be a unanimous, so to speak, decision, right? As things are being compared, you can't have some ledgers be like, well, no, that's not how we see this data. And some ledgers are like, yes. And then you just process it. Everything has to be identical for the blockchain technology to work as, as, um, uh, as engineered. So energy consumption facts, because this is so like the scalability and sort of the, the weight of it, you may or may not be familiar audience with, you know, the, in the news, this is often brought up right away as the impact that moving to this technology can have on climate change, et cetera, and the environment. So some energy consumption, the global annual energy consumption of blockchain is estimated to be between 120 and 240 terawatt hours per year. So if you're anything like me, that means nothing. Sounds impressive, but what is that? That is the equivalent to the annual electricity usage of many individual countries, such as Argentina huh. and Australia. So have an entire country be the equivalent of a technology that's still in its nascent, like it's still very early on. That's it's alarming. <laughs> uh, I don't get into it much here, but there is a lot of... Um, work being done to make it more efficient and to change how something uh, is processed. I believe already, I might be misspeaking, but there's already a difference between Bitcoin and how that's minted and processed versus Ethereum, a different type of cryptocurrency that I mentioned. Um, I think Ethereum is a lot more efficient and relies on more renewable sources of energy versus Bitcoin. Um, Oh yeah, so the, the majority of the energy is used to power blockchain is used in Bitcoin mining. As I mentioned, Bitcoin is sort of the major offender here. Bitcoin by itself is estimated to consume between 100 and 150 terawatt hours of electricity per year. And that, just Bitcoin alone, is more than usage countries like the Netherlands and the Czech Republic. So as I mentioned, the, the energy use comes from a variety of sources, including coal, natural gas, and renewable energy, sort of blockchain overall. But Bitcoin, for one reason or another, um, is largely concentrated in uh, countries like China and Kazakhstan, where there is much more reliance on fossil fuels. So therefore, because Bitcoin is centered there, it's contributing much more to climate change than, say, Ethereum or other blockchain applications outside of cryptocurrency that I mentioned, like uses in government um, or healthcare and things like that. Okay, to break up the discussion of the history of, of these things, uh, I'm gonna move to trivia number two. So US public debt per capita increased by how much between December, 2019 and December 2020. 
A, 5%, B, 19%, C, 33%, or D, 56%? 56%. Oh, you went with the high. Because of COVID, I would have gone high too. Uh, it's 19. Yeah, uh, so that. 19% uh, from 70,000 to 84,000, again, per capita. Um, now, although the way that I wrote that, the 19 is the second um, lowest, but to put this into perspective for like the flow over time, that was a massive jump. So in that year, right, the year that COVID struck, um, it it grew 19%, but the year before that, it was only 5%. So from 2018 to 2019, it went from 67,000 to 70,000, a 5% increase. Then it jumped 19%, right? More than triple that rate um, from 70 to 84. And then it returned, not quite to 5%, but just about, uh, it was 6% growth in 2021, uh, and then 6% growth from 2021 into 2022, where it is now currently stands at the end of, uh, of 2022 data anyway, is that the average public debt per capita in the US is 94,000. So why I mentioned that was a little bit of a setup is that I, I just wanted to talk about um, the mental and physical effects of being in debt. And this is just, it will sound sort of commonplace knowledge if you're just thinking of your own, your own experience or friends or just knowledge of other people, but this has been studied. Um, I won't go too much into the studies, but I'll, I'll mention um, probably one of them that is most prominent in the literature I found anyway. So debt can lead to stress, anxiety, and depression. Again, it may sound like, well, no duh, um, but I think it warrants thinking about it in sort of a broader a broader sense when you realize this isn't just anecdotal like i know some people but overall as more people take on debt and we see things like a 19% increase in the entire nation's debt um where it's normally 5% and then you're getting close to like $100,000 per capita what is that doing on a massive macro scale to health so stress, anxiety, depression, uh, but also there are physical aspects that come with this. It's been linked to high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, obesity, sleep problems, impaired immune function, and even early death. Why that happens is it's largely because the way that people will deal with the stress, the, the coping mechanisms themselves trigger other problems. So there can be a move towards alcohol, substance abuse, drugs to deal with the anxiety and the stress of it while limiting and isolating themselves. So, right, there can be a move from, well, let me save money by not seeing people as much and going out, but then I'm stressed out, so I'm going to drink. So you're like turning to, right, a, a, a really negative substance for the body. You're not having the social impact that a community and like seeing people has. And then also, sadly, right, people that are significantly in debt may make nutrition choices that are far worse and cheaper because they're not going to spend for fresher foods versus heavily processed foods. So you can imagine how this compounds itself over time. 
So one of the uh, most well-known, I think, studies of this is talked about in an article called Over the Limit, the Association Among Health, Race, and Debt by uh, Drentea and Lavrakis. It was done in the year 2000 and uh, published in the year 2000, but it looked at information from Ohio residents in a 1997 survey. And it explored how debt is associated with these physical and mental health um, issues that also vary by race. So people who report being in debt are more likely to report, again, poor physical health, such as these chronic pain, mental health problems, and everything that I just described. So I only mentioned that just to say, look, this has been studied. It's not just anecdotal. Um, it, these things have been sort of physically quantified and measured. Um, these associations are stronger for people who are Black than for people who are white. And I think from um, so if you're paying attention, common sense in the history of this nation and, and a lot of the discussions that we've had on this podcast in the past with disparities, um, that seems to make a lot of sense in terms of the findings, sadly. Uh, debt may lead to health problems through a number of mechanisms, as I mentioned, such as the stress, the unhealthy behaviors that come from them, and the lack of social support. So the whole reason that I described that was because um, reading this research made me kind of realize that it was like, oh, you wouldn't think of how you're dealing with that, then you become isolated, et cetera. Uh, and of course, they call for more research to really understand these mechanisms a little bit deeper and, and what this might mean on sort of a societal level. There's a really good podcast, and I don't remember um, which one it was. It was an NPR podcast, so maybe Invisibilia or hmm. This American Life. I'll, I'll try to find it and link it. Right. I mean, I heard this probably a year ago. Uh, at least, but it was exactly what you're talking about and sort of the mental effects of um, being in debt and dealing with poverty and how uh, a lot of callous um, rich people will be like, oh, you know, this person is making poor decisions, right? They already owe money. Yes. And now they're like making stupid decisions. Like instead of paying their grocery bill, they're paying, you know, for a new pair of boots or something like that. So it talked about, um, actually your mental decision-making process, your, your, your cognitive abilities are impacted, which probably has somewhat something to do with depression and anxiety, like you mentioned, but yes. also because that level of stress, you cannot as a human being be making logical decisions that you're making without that stress. So really interesting. I'm so glad you about. mentioned that. Yeah. 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 Um, no, that's terrific. And was something, a thread that I, I'm glad you mentioned because I ran across it, but I, I sort of didn't capture it here, but that's incredibly important, right? And it makes me think of when you throw through coping mechanisms, you're sort, and then you're withholding certain things from yourself, right? If you suddenly decide to isolate, you don't realize what that's doing to your own body's chemical reward system for things like a dopamine rush or versus or, or, or not. So I think you naturally then seek out. And I don't mean to, it's not trying to belittle it because the, the example I'm about to use sounds sort of funny and like whatever, but I don't mean it. It's really not when you think about it. So suddenly doing things like uh, relying on sugar and a sugar rush and eating, eating really poorly because it gives you a rush that you might be missing in somewhere else to deal with the stress or the new boots. Like there is definitely a dopamine rush and spending money. That's why you see addictive behaviors and things like eating disorders and shopping disorders and compulsive shopping and things like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Allison. Thank you. I'm really glad you brought that up. Okay. So to round us out, that's the, uh, the end of, of my rabbit hole, but uh, trivia number three. 
what percentage of the world population is estimated to be unbanked, meaning not having an account with a financial institution or a mobile provider? Is it A, 5%, B, 18%, C, 31%, or D, 56%? 18, I know I'm trying to decide between oh, two of them. <laughs> um, 56%. Uh, it's 18. Oh, I 31 was my other choice because I'm thinking about okay, yep, it's not my day for trivia. No, no, no worries. Um, so yeah, 18%, it's 1.4 billion out of 7.9 billion people. Um, now. I will say that's better than it was 10 years ago. So I, I went back, um, the, the, the research that I was seeing said that they just gave me the, sorry, they mentioned that 1.4 billion, although bad and 18% of 7.9 billion, that 1.4 back in 2011 was 2.5 billion that were unbanked. Mm. And I had to look up what the global population was at that point. It wasn't 7.9 billion. It was 7.1 billion or thereabouts. Um, So 2.5 is 35% of 7.1 billion. So I know I'm talking around in circles a little bit, but in 2011, 35% of the global population was unbanked. Now, 10 years later, the data in 2021, um, that 35% dropped to 18%. So Is that good? Is that bad? Uh, I think right, because in I think recent news, so, banks are failing. Right, 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 so. <laughs> right, right. But I do tend to think that that metric, when applied globally, means a little bit more support infrastructure, some sort of connectivity. So I think mm. that's a positive. Um, but that could be debatable. Uh, so we certainly welcome anyone to sound off on social media with us uh, if you uh, have a perspective on that. So yeah, that that is my rabbit hole for this week. That is great, Mark. I am. I am not going to ask you these questions, but I, I am probably off air because cryptocurrency is something that has stumped me forever. I just can't. I, I. I. I get it. I get the concept. But then, like, when I try to think about like how is it minted and what does that really mean, I my brain starts shorting out. So. And some of it I'm familiar with. Some of it I'm not. That the minting is the the most intensive process from like an efficiency perspective. Um, it is creating some sort of bit of code as far as i understand that therefore cannot be uh, is so encrypted it, it can't be faked or fungi- right, fungible right um and then and then every um every every transaction if it moves once it's minted if it mo- if you sell it to someone else that becomes yeah. part of the code i believe so the history of the transactions as it moves around just keeps getting appended to it is my understanding yeah, there's another great pod, another one. I can't remember where I heard it. Definitely an NPR show. I'll try to find this too because it was a while ago. But it was about a group of folks who were trying to create a new cryptocurrency. And what you're, you know, what you're saying, like, okay, it starts with this bit of code to to make sure that it's absolutely secure. You have to make sure at that point of origin that no one's messing with it, right? Because then the whole non fungible thing goes out the window. So it's the most difficult part of the process. Right. And they're like, they talk about all the security measures that they put in place as they were about to launch this and how they were still getting like stymied from all ends in terms of people trying to break into it, it was really interesting so yeah yeah for that. another one of the um 
sort of as I was looking for trivia questions and so on, one thing that I ran across was I believe the metric is nine out of 10 governments are already exploring how to have their own digital currency just because of the nature of everything we talked about and that it's becoming more used. And if, um, but I feel like that we really have to solve the climate impact and the, you know, how much that energy is pumping. There's another, another metric that is like the amount of carbon distributed by every mining, every one Bitcoin mind is alarming. So to have the scale of it in the world amplify so much if governments start to use it. Excuse me a little bit. The other thing is that I think a lot of people like it because it is held up as a massive democratized thing, uh, medium of this currency, because it is not linked to central banks and governments. There's there's this very, is it libertarian? I'm assuming that that's probably the the, the group that I think would most resonate with so, the fact that it's yeah. You know, it's 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 truth by transparency, and and it's all these nodes, and it, you don't have to rely on any government to control it. Yeah. So that that's interesting, interesting that they're right? then creating digital currency that would sort of go against the nature of it itself. But yes. All right. Well, more for us to learn about. Right. Because, yeah. <laughs> don't know enough about it. Um, okay. Well, I will jump into a very different take on payment. Yes, please do. Um, but before I start, my first, you know, um, note was going to be the etymology, but Mark's taking care of that for us. But Mark, teach me how to say it because I was going to pronounce it Pacheri. It's P-A-C-E-R-E. What did you say? Oh, oh I, you know know what? What I did probably it say it wrong. Uh, no, I, you're the, no, Italian I said Pacare, but that's probably wrong yeah. because if it's a, a sh sound, it's probably Pacare. Sorry. So, okay. We don't really know here. So, right. Well, in uh, Italian, it would be a show before a vowel or right. Because be. in a C before an E. Yeah. Yeah. Pichari, yeah. Pichari, or an I. But uh, the important part here is, as Mark said, it came that verb in Latin meant to pacify. So, as in to pacify one's creditors. And we've all heard the term, it's time to pay the piper. And I guess that most of you are also aware where that term comes from, but we're going to explore it a little bit. I do not know where that comes from, actually. I was just going to say, Mark, do you want to make a guess? Really? I mean, I would have thought playing the piper. I I mean, like I'm picturing like an old inn where a piper was playing for the crowd and then they rely on the audience paying. Well, I, I like it. I mean, you're, you're, you're not, you're not right on, but you're like, you're painting a picture in the right direction. You're painting okay. this picture <laughs> of like, like kind of olden times for right. sure. A picture like you okay. had your meal, but you had free entertainment. Now pay the piper as well, but maybe not. So it is that, but it's darker. So, so paying the piper. Because middle ages. Paying, were <laughs> paying the piper is, is really a, a metaphor for facing the consequences of a decision or an action, um, meaning it's time to pay what you owe, right? You need to pay for services or goods you've requested or to pay metaphorically. And the idiom actually comes from an old fairy tale about the Pied Piper. So I'm sure that rings a bell, Mark, uh, in which a piper is hired by a town to clear out a massive rat infestation. Fairy tales are always so creepy. Um, And he does this by playing his flute and it enchants the rats and they follow him down to the river where they all drown. 
So he completes this service and the townspeople are thrilled because they were really having a massive problem, but they bilk him. They refuse to pay what they had promised him. And so he enchants their children with his flute playing and leads them out of town, never <gasps> to be seen again. Oh, I thought it was going to be into the river and they all drowned. Well, there are mo- <laughs> not quite that. There, are, It's a fairy tale. There are multiple versions. So one version is into the river to drown. Oh, no, please. it is that dark. One version is into a hillside, like into a cave where then a landslide came and locked them in forever. Hmm. It's very, very dark. So that is where the idiom to pay the piper comes from. Because if you don't pay the piper what you owe him, right. worse things might happen. You're going to pay one if way or piper- another. This magic came from fairy magic, then it makes sense that they all go under the hill. Exactly. And they're still dancing to this day. To this very day. As are you and I. As I hear a bell ring. Yeah, exactly. So this fairy tale was included in Grimm's fairy tales. So the Grimm brothers, they um, originally called that collection Children's and Household Tales. It was published in 1812. And the Grimm brothers were, were real, two real people, two real brothers, and they traveled throughout Europe in the early 19th century, collecting over 200 folk stories. And they published these as, as this collection that we now know as, uh, know as of, know of as the Grimm's fairy tales. And it gave many of us uh, in the West the fairy tales we grew up on. The poet Robert Browning later, 1849, made the tale, this particular fairy tale, even more famous with his poem, The Pied Piper of Hamelin. And it's a really clever and fun poem that I hadn't read before, and I really recommend it. It's really witty and a lot of great wordplay. But that is not the point. I was going to try to do he a He must have watered of, it down and made it sweet, I'm assuming. Like, right. Because even like you just said, gave us the fairy tales we grew up on. I'm like, yeah, I feel like we grew up on some Disneyfied version of them. Like, not the hardcore. Right. The, not like the originals. He really didn't make it too oh, okay. sweet. I was going to try to do a stanza of it for my quick hit. And I couldn't get it done in less ah. than 15 seconds. I gave it up. So go read it. We'll link it. Um, okay. But where did the tale come from originally? So popularized by the Grimm's because they were collecting stories and legends. And then later by Browning. All of those fairy tales came from local folklore. Um, this particular, sorry, excuse me. This particular story comes from a German legend dating back to the Middle Ages, which Mark has already referenced. <laughs> And it hails from the real town of Hamelin, which still exists. It's a little over 200 miles west of Berlin in Germany. And scholars now believe that the story comes from a real event. So we know Mark's face right now, for those of you not watching, is great. So we know that most folklore has a kernel of reality in it, right? Um, from which it grows. But this one kind of blew my mind. It's like the original true crime mystery. Um, So in Hamlin today, there still exists on a residence dating to 1602, an etching that reads, quote, AD 1284, on the 26th of June, the day of St. John and St. Paul, 130 children born in Hamlin were led out of the town by a piper wearing multicolored clothes. After passing the Calvary near the Coppenberg, they disappeared forever. And so, yeah, the Coppenberg is uh, generally. uh, It was Pennywise. Oh, stop it. Oh, (laughs) looking around here, the the hills outside of town. Uh, By the way, Pied Piper, Pied means multicolored. And so the Pied Piper is always um, depicted wearing like a multicolored coat. So 
there you go. There's this. I never, I never knew that. There's this not ancient, but like this etching from the Middle Ages that references. There is also uh, an entry in Hamlin's town records dating to 1384, reading, "quote It is a hundred years since our children left." Uh, I just got chills because that's in the actual town records. Um, from 100 years exactly later. And even more evidence exists. The earliest mention of the story seems to have been on a stained glass window placed in the church of Hamelin around 1300. So that would have been about 16 years after the event allegedly occurred. It was destroyed in 1660, so you can't go see it, but it was described in several accounts between the 14th and 17th centuries as depicting the figure of a Pied Piper leading several ghostly white children. Uh, there's a 15th century manuscript called the Lüneburg Manuscript, and it's an early German account of the event. And there's five historical memory. Ver- right. So my point here is there's different places in the historical record where this is mentioned. God, we should have saved this episode for Halloween. Great. Right? Um, and it's all referring to this similar story. 130 children or young people vanishing on the 26th of June, 1284, following I need to check if there have been a lot of like German, like this sounds like the perfect German Netflix series or something like. Oh, it really does. Like there must have been in the history of German storytelling, a a riffing on this topic that I just am not familiar with here. Honestly, the producer or the direct, the creators of dark should do this next. Yes. Uh, So one of the current leading theories about what historically happened that then became this fantastical story suggests that the town's youth were part of a migration of Germans to Eastern Europe, um, which was happening at the, around that time. And it was fueled by an economic depression. And in this theory that a Piper would have been a, 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 what they called a recruiter at the time who would come to try to recruit people to move to these areas that they had just maybe taken over, uh, offering them something in return, like land, et cetera. Apparently these recruiters of the time often were really sweet, colorful Sweet, sweet candies, maybe. Like creepy. <laughs> these recruiters wore colorful costumes and they played instruments because they, they were trying to attract attention. So, so that's clowns an, is what we're saying. An, a creepy clown <laughs> led children out of it. Oh. We're going to Pennywise forever. In this like migration theory, because there are other theories that we're going to talk about, many historians believe the youth emigrated to Transylvania. In fact, uh, that is mentioned both in Grimm and in Browning, but a German linguist named Jürgen Udoff, he proposed a modified theory. He thinks the children were brought to regions around Berlin and he backs up his theory with some evidence. He found that the family names common in Hamlin at the time, 13th century, show up with surprising frequency in the areas of Uckermark and Prignitz, which are near Berlin. So he's trying, he's like linking things that could really point to this. Um, the theory is also- Yeah, am I getting my geography wrong? Transylvania is a bit far from where this would be in Germany. It is, but I mean, Berlin was 200 miles. So um, the theory is kind of reinforced that that region around Berlin was newly liberated from the Danes. And so like right for German colonization. Um, now- in my Some script people, for Netflix, it's definitely Transylvania because I need a bridge to like vampire. Absolutely. I, mean, I totally get that. And there's also like apparently evidence that there are also similar German names in Transylvania. So could be. Um, the other like the side note to this is this also could have referred to adults who migrated 
because citizens of a city were often called children of a city, children, the children of our city or whatever. But that seems like a stretch because it, like the drawing in the church stained glass that's now gone was referenced as specifically having children in it. Who knows? Throwing it all out there for you conspiracy theorists out there <laughs> to dive in. Here's it's some like of all the my other... interest of it just disintegrated because I'm like, oh, it's just a bunch of people who for right, who left. We don't care. Right. But we don't know, yeah. right? So here are the other theories that are that are taken quite seriously. So the other theory is that these children left as part of a children's crusade. Um, so in the 13th century, part of the wave of the medieval crusades aimed at winning back the Holy Land. Um, there were two actual historical attempted children's crusades um, in the early 13th century. One did start in Germany and the children made it um, all the way, you know, to Africa. Uh, they were very likely sold into slavery in Tunis. So uh, the second children's crusade started in France and it died in France. The kids never made it out of France. But what the hell are they going to do over there? Wine them <laughs> the to death? Like, uh, yeah, seize on adults. Ask too many whys. Um, but are we there the yet? Tiny, are we there, the, are we there yet? Tell you the Oh, that'd be, yeah, that's terrible. It's so funny. Awful. Sorry. <laughs> Never mind. Of this, Slavery for which, you. Which seems pretty like, oh, okay, these kids got like lured into like, hey, yeah, let's go be part of his children's crusade, but the timing's off. By like 62 years, right? So like by almost a century. So probably not, but who knows? Uh, another theory is the disappearance of the children was a metaphor for the Black Plague. Um, it doesn't add up date-wise again. The plague didn't reach Germany until the 14th century. This was 1284. Oh yeah. I was like, that's some 14, 1500. Okay. Um, killed in a landslide or sorry until uh the 1400s killed in a landslide is is another thing that there was some right, horrible landslide that, like <laughs> big note killing a landslide <laughs> and in the in the original tale again it, like any myth like any tale there are different versions but in the original the kids are led into this mountainside and then there's this like rock fall and the, they're sealed in forever and so could there have been an actual natural disaster that killed the kids? But then why are they talking about a figure again and again, leading their children away? Uh, right. We're like picturing it, a big town. This probably had like a hundred people in it. I mean, who knows us? I don't know. Right. I mean, I think, well, 130 children were missing. So I had more than no, that, but more than that. <laughs> so interesting theory, um, dancing mania. So this is also known as St. Vitus's dance or choreomania or St. John's dance. And Mark's about to make a joke. I just feel like dancing. No, it's not a joke. It's, it's funny. This is an, an actual disease first documented in the 11th century, and it manifests itself through wild, uncontrollable dancing. Like people just dance. You, there, there are accounts of this from starting in the Middle Ages. Um, the first recorded one in Germany, and then it spread throughout Europe, and people dance until they drop from exhaustion. And the theories of the time not shockingly where they were possessed by the devil or cursed by a saint. Clearly the only things that could cause any sort of illness. Current theories about this particular illness are ergot poisoning. Ergot's a fungus. And there are two types of ergotism. This is a, a real disease. And the first is um, characterized by like severe muscle spasms, fever and hallucinations. Everybody and drank victims, the Kool-Aid. 
quite literally made with exactly. something. Like, yeah. That makes more sense to me. Cause why has it disappeared? You're not hearing like a bunch of people couldn't stop dancing in the Lower East Side. Like it had to be well, something. Right. I think. So they become manic or they have other forms of um, tremors, suffer from hallucinations, all of that. And the ergotism, so it's a fungus and it uh, infects grain, usually rye, but it can infect other grains, but rye is its favorite. Um, but this particular area didn't really have rye, like it wasn't a main crop. So like, eh, could it have been? Uh, but in one actual documented 13th century outbreak, a literal form of dance fever, uh, it did occur just south of Hamlin. I mean, this is documented uh, in a town called Airfort, where a group of youths were documented as wildly gyrating. I love that historical description as they traveled it's out Elvis. of town. And they danced out of town and they ended up 12 miles away in a neighboring town. And a mountain um, fell on them. <laughs> and and that's they went off, the story. But they went right. off to win yeah. Jerusalem and were sold. And then they went home, except they like that we're <laughs> going to string them all together. Then the aliens came, then the zombie apocalypse happened. So some of the and then children. Pennywise were, ate them. Ah, uh, he was on the spaceship. Apparently expired shortly after this, having flat out danced themselves to death. And those who survived were left with chronic tremors. So something. That's something why the church happened. hates dancing, everybody. They have forever. <laughs> so there's a theory that perhaps Hamlin witnessed a similar plague, right? And the dancing to the figurative tune of a piper. Piper being the devil, right? So this is going back to metaphor. Uh, and then finally, there are kind of theories around it was mass hysteria. There, at this time, as Mark already mentioned, like the dark ages were no walk in the park. So there was massive famine, drought, disease. I mean, constant pressures tying back into Mark's thing. Like when you are faced with like an ongoing poverty situation. Nobody was educated. Nobody so, agreed. Yeah, just losing your mind, quite literally, mass hysteria, like, could this have been so again? Why was it only children? We don't know. So there's one final piece of the puzzle. All of these theories, viable to some degree, they neglect one specific key in the mystery. And uh, this is a quote from Vibke Reimer. He works at the Hamlin Museum. You can visit Hamlin, Germany now, and they really capitalize on this whole story, which is weird because it's such a tragic story, but like they bake bread that looks like rats and they have a whole museum about the Pied Piper and they have a a gate that I think it's, I think it's called Piper's Gate. I'm not sure where the, the gate of the city that the children were allegedly led out of. And on that street, you're not allowed to play music. Is very, very dark. But anyway, here's what he says, quote, these theories don't explain the very particular date cited for the loss of the children and the local sense of trauma. Did something happen that officials had been covering up something so traumatic, way to stir things up, Vibke, so traumatic that it was transmitted orally for so long in the town's collective memory over decades and even centuries. So he's kind of throwing out there like, what is this? So here's one theory because that date is very specific. It's even mentioned in the fairy tale. So the date chronicled that 26th of June is also the date of pagan midsummer celebrations during the middle ages. And pipers were often hired for festivals and celebrations, like any any kind of um, pagan celebration, you would hire musicians, you would hire pipers. Um, 
And the fact that the documentation also emphasizes that the children followed the Piper to the Coppin, which is commonly translated as hills, like the Coppenberg would be like this particular hill outside the town, suggests another link, which is there are regions in Germany where midsummer was celebrated by lighting fires on the hills. So people would go to the hills and light fires and dance. And all this leads to one particularly macabre reading of the legend. They drunkenly is, burned all their kids. Uh, which <laughs> is that. I'm going to add that to the list of theories, <laughs> which is that the piper may be emblematic of like a pagan shaman playing his flute, leading the youth to their midsummer festivities and the hells, you know, part of just part of the midsummer celebration. Could it have been that a local Christian faction uh, which at the time was trying to cement conversion of the region, waylaid and like massacred the group. Um, yep. the, apparently the destroyed Going church window showed the children as sacrifices, that church window that we don't, that we can't view anymore, but that has been described. Um, so that is another really kind of bloody theory. A less bloody version is maybe the Christians like spirited them away to local monasteries, like took them away to convert them. Um, I am so excited you're telling this story <laughs> on Easter Sunday, a celebration that was taken over by Christians and just took a pagan spring festival of fertility and like painted over it with a bunch of crap, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, perfect. It's very timely. Yeah, there you Excellent. go. I didn't even I didn't even plan that. So so, OK, I've given you all the theories and I have zero answers for you because they don't know there there are there are legitimate scholars still trying to i mean none of these threads are good it's a very exciting choose your own adventure i'm like they're either <laughs> yeah. sold in tunisia buried under a hill i don't know eaten <laughs> by somebody like right. it's just everything Drowned. or the, the most banal was they were actually adults some dude showed up recruiter from transylvania who was like your town is crap economy's crap come live with us and they left like that it is the most boring and also because of the stained glass window showing children again could have been a metaphor yeah i think that last one sounds plausible to me but that's just because i don't trust religion (laughs) well regardless of all the theories we still don't know maybe someday we will uh it's an ancient x file that i just wanted to share with all of you because i was so i couldn't believe when i came across it that this was based on a real thing and that there's that many uncertainties and variations and and clues and oh wow that's wild thank you that's fascinating (laughs) excellent so that's not where you thought i was going was it where did you when you mentioned earlier where you thought i was going down some anti-capitalist rant didn't you maybe Mm -hmm. i wasn't i I really wasn't sure (laughs) um where i thought we could have crossed over was the research that i did in the uh, racial disparities because i know it's something near and dear Excuse me to your heart and you're passionate about. Um, Yeah. Excellent. Well, Well, excellent. I love that. Interest of time. What is is your big question, Mark? Ah, yes. Okay. So my big question is, in general, with sort of modern culture's growing concern for long-term health optimization, right? People are living longer. We're more, uh, I think, attuned to things that can negatively affect our health in general, um, will society begin to hold unscrupulous credit and banking practices more directly responsible for poor health of people who are in chronic debt? 
or who are lured into chronic debt. Um, you know, or on the flip side, is that not holding individuals accountable for their own actions, right? I can see it on both sides. Is it a movement towards a quote unquote nanny state, as the far right would call it? Or, you know, is this legitimately protection from profiteers that literally bank <laughs> on weak human nature and the inability of several, uh, a high percentage of the population? who in many ways is incapable of denying short-term gratification for longer term because of literally neurologic patterns in the brain, dopamine, reward systems that are physiologically um, right, uh, a part of us. So are those practices preying on those that really can't resist them and trapping them into a debt cycle that then affects their health to such an extent? And will they be held responsible and and maybe that will be legislated away at some point. Yeah, um wow, really interesting question. I think that no, they will not be legislated away because that's not the way our system works. So I think unfortunately right. the, the fatalist side of me as my friend has pointed out that I didn't think I had, but apparently I do. No. The big money folks are going to keep getting away with it. Uh now do I think there needs to be a complete quote unquote nanny state? Absolutely not. There ha always has to be some balance I think with personal responsibility. Um however, it is such it, People are purposely, politically, financially, in all these ways, people are put in positions. All of us are put in positions so that we're kind of kept down. Like I've talked about last time, like the elite don't want any of us getting what they have, right? So the politicians make sure we're fighting each other. So we're not paying attention to them, that we're disagreeing on right. things. The banks are making sure we're as in debt as we can get uh, so that they own everything. So no, I don't think it'll happen. What about you? No, I I'm not sure. And I just realized as you were talking that I'm going to be transparent with my ignorance here. I feel like in 2008, the crash we had was partly related to the approvals of sort of bad credit deals, right? So yeah. I feel like in a way, what we learned in 2008 was that those practices that were letting folks that shouldn't take on debt take the debt on and then it fell apart. Right. Like, so I, I yeah. that's where I'm, I'm a bit ignorant of exactly what happened, but I, I feel like there's a little bit of hope there. And that if we learned a lesson like that, to your point, maybe it's not going to be legislated in such a black and white manner, but there are some protections that are being put in place that. No, that's well. fair. That is fair. Yeah. It basically was, uh, it's much more complicated than this and I, I can explain it, but basically, yes, people were be get, being given approved for mortgages uh, that were way beyond their reach because right. there was somebody shorting something that, that basically rich people would make more money off of this ah, by shorting different, by shorting short like these like deals. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yes, there will sometimes when it's something so egregious and it, but it, they didn't put caps on that until it almost sank the, the entire whole, U.S. banking industry. Yeah, so again, yeah. that was self-interest that made them cap it, not because they gave a shit about the position right. people were put in. But in a way if that may have, be what always saves us is when right. self-interest becomes, when the problem becomes so unfortunately so right. expansive that those that need to save themselves, have to save themselves. Does that make sense? Right. Have to save everybody else. Yeah. But you mentioned the big short. If you haven't seen it, it explains this all very well and in a humorous manner. It's a movie by Adam McKay. 
and um, highly recommend it. We'll link it. I mentioned it, but I haven't actually seen it, so I should watch. It. Mark, you should especially see it because it really, really just ties into your question. It's really well done. You'll oh, you'll actually great. really like it. It's witty. You know, it's not just like a dry ugh, walk through it. So. Like my like my description of bartering today. Stop it. That was not dry. <laughs> All right, what is what is uh, yours? Okay, so some see the Pied Piper tale. Well, and it is. They don't, not just certain people see it this way as a morality lesson on doing the right thing, right? So you, the the town, the piper says, I can help you with the rat problem. The town says, great, we'll pay you X amount of money. He says, great, he takes care of the rat problem. And then they're like, haha, not gonna pay you. We're happy we got rid of the rats. And then he takes their children, right? So, so it really is like a morality lesson on, you need to pay for what you, you know, what, yeah. whatever you, you've gotten in return. So you have to do the right thing. It's like karma in immediate action. Yeah. Uh, right. So yeah. I screwed the piper and now he's really going to get me back contract. tenfold. What happens? So it is right. So my question to you, Mark, is karma as a concept. I mean, this could be a whole episode in itself, but briefly karma. What do you think? Is karma a thing? Is karma real? Or is just karma something people teach their children about to kind of uh, as another rail to keep them on uh, oh yeah that's the right thing as a energy or some sort of like balance outside of human behavior on its own yeah i wouldn't say that's real um but you know you're talking to an atheist who doesn't believe in mythical things um that are outside now as a pattern of sociolo- sociological influences and forces that i think makes sense right if it's more a a, a rebound pattern because you behaved a certain way and therefore you are seen societally in certain ways and therefore treated differently and it comes back to get you i feel like that makes sense but to say that in the absence of any of that social dynamic that the universe is gonna you know a bird's going to poop on your head more frequently because you were addicted to somebody that doesn't make sense to me. No. Yeah. No, that, I, I love the way you said that because <laughs> in the West, I think karma is usually viewed as one being like spiritual, right? Like it, it's tied to there's karma spoken about in Hinduism and Buddhism and um, in other religions as well. And also viewed as like a consequences of our actions sort of thing. The the Sanskrit meaning, the original meaning of the word is really like, talking about an action or a deed and its effects or consequences. So just much more straightforward kind oh, of saying, yeah. if you do X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z will happen. Now it gets, it does get, again, this, I read a lot on this. It's going to be like hours of conversation, but there are different takes on it in different faiths, but it then does come back to, and in, in some, uh, in some uh, sects of Buddhism, they're, they're saying it affects your future lives, right? People who believe in reincarnation and Hinduism, it talks about there's a spiritual force is going to get you back. You have to do good. Right. So, so it, there's all this mishmash, but like what you said, if it could be like a societal thing, yes, you absolutely believe it. That's, that's also very cool that you, you've um, said that because there's no scientific proof for karma. Right. But there are explanations like doing good makes us feel happier right? We get a dopamine hit a lot of times, less your yep. psychopath. Um, and acting in a pro-social way ensures we're treated better in a society that, that like we're yeah. reliant yep. on each other as human beings. So exactly what you're saying. The, so I do. the, the social, the, the, the internal mental effect, um, um, Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, most of that is about the internal suffering of, why am I forgetting his name? 
famous famous character in in uh I feel like looking it up because it's <gasps> I'm absolutely Oh my blanking. gosh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, uh but the the lead, right, is dealing with the 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 guilt and the shame of a, of a horrible action of, of murder. And therefore it's like torturous. So to your point, it's not just, I don't think it's, you know, mythical. I think to your point, it's a combination of how others will treat you, uh, how you'll treat yourself, how you'll view your own experience of things. If you're dealing with like the social, like the, the shame uh, of, of an action that you know was wrong is also going to you know color your whole also there yeah there's also there is an interesting scientific corollary that i i can't not do because we've talked about this before so i I did just think this was an interesting theory so there is quantum entanglement right so (laughs) oh my god sorry that was like my favorite moment of several of our episodes but just allison in isolation looking at me going there is quantum entanglement I love <laughs> that should be on a t-shirt. Yes, We've there talked- is. Please go on. <laughs> We've talked about this in other episodes. It's what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. It basically, I mean, I talk about this so much that people are probably like, we know what it is. Don't tell us again. But I'm going to tell you again. It's basically two part- particles separated by space actually having an effect on each other, right? Yeah, they so start. In- sorry. Go no, on. See, they, no, if see, they're spinning a certain way, like it can be across the universe, then they'll shift and just start spinning back at the same. Like it's, and no one knows what the hell is connecting them. This is exactly but right. But it's not a why. deity, people. It's going <laughs> right. to be a force we don't know. Yet. We just haven't figured it out. But, but, but what I would just throw out there as food for thought is we know quantum entanglement exists. We don't know why. We don't, we can't figure it out yet. So if everything is connected in some way that we don't understand or entangled, doesn't it benefit us always to do the right thing? Because if those physical particles are connected, couldn't it be that like actions are connected and it's just food for thought? I love that. That's very true. That's very true. So again, when I say it's not mythological, blah, 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 it could be something we don't understand in terms of. Yeah. Uh, in terms of exactly energy exchanges, we don't we don't understand. And by the way, it's Raskolnikov. It's not that I remembered it; I just looked it up on my phone. Uh, famous uh, character in *Crime and Punishment*. Who excellent yeah, commits and murder. And I love and that the, you thought that would just be something that would roll off everybody's song. Well, it's unique. Well, watch. It's probably a very popular name in in Russian, but it's it's unique to me. And I remember. <laughs> I think Raskolnikov many times over the years, but then blanked. Anyway, welcome to my late forties. <laughs> um, okay, so I think we should revisit our uh, ratings and get our now. Oh for yeah, next time. Let's do it. So let's see our ratings. You rated payment a five. How are you feeling now? You're going up. Uh, I feel it. I am going up because <laughs> the story was like mesmerizing yeah, yeah, with, yeah. just like the piper is mesmerizing i'm i'm a uh i'm gonna mm, i'm gonna go up to and mm, 8.5 8.5 oh, right. i was gonna say eight and you're 8.5 okay i was actually thinking even of a nine but 8.5 feels right nice all right and you were at a six thinking i'm thinking i'm thinking and i'm gonna stay at six 
It's about right. Oh, that's pretty rare. Oh, you did that two episodes ago with rehearsal. Oh, did actually. I? Yeah. Oh, I did. And you did it with Jewel. Oh, yeah. So you've done it. Uh, all right. So you weren't fully, you weren't, it wasn't like. It was interesting. Light in your fire. I didn't, you know. Yeah. Didn't change Excellent. my world. Okay. Enough said. <laughs> Short and sweet. That's good. Because I think we're running over time anyway. All right. Well, I'm going to generate our word for our next episode, our noun for our next episode. Woo-hoo. If you're ready. You ready I am Mark? ready. Hit Positive me with thoughts. Because, you know, quantum entanglement might work. How? Okay. The, <laughs> the word is. The word is map, M-A-P. Hmm. Cool. What are you thinking? I'm going to go seven. Okay. I'm going to go eight because I think maps are pretty interesting. And yeah, I'm going to go eight. So Mark's at a seven and I am at an eight. All right. Brilliant. Anything you want to share, Mark, before we say goodbye? No, just as always, a thank you to you. I thought uh, today's discussion was great. And I, I loved the the uniqueness of the story and, and all the possible permutations thereof. Very cool. Excellent. And thank you, viewers. I know we have been a little inconsistent this year. I was away for almost a month, so you can blame me. Uh, but we're going to get back on the horse hair. A horse? <laughs> the horse hair? The horse here. So... <laughs> Thank you um, for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, as usual, we ask that you follow or subscribe on whatever platform you use for your podcasts. And if you have the time to give us a rating, it does really help us and um, gives us feedback and also helps other people find the show. You can visit us on the web at renownedpodcast.com or on social media at Renowned Podcast. And of course, we hope you'll tune in for our next episode with our new noun map. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.